We're in Psalm 9, uh, as our sort of rhythm has been in between those in-between periods of, of years, school holidays or, or the Christmas break, we turn to the Psalms and we're just working our way through, uh, praying that the Lord blesses us to get to the end of the Psalms as we do four or five at a time throughout January and June and, and times like that. So we're in Psalm 9. Uh, if you want to listen to the others, they are online. Uh, and and feel free to to go back and find them. Psalm 9, we started last week, so we're picking up in verse 11. Uh, I think it would be helpful to read the whole psalm. So so listen up or follow along uh, as we look at these 20 verses or read the 20 verses, and then we'll dive into verses 11 to 20. Psalm 9. I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have, set, you have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted, their, blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those, who know your, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they, have, they made, in the net that they hid. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known to be... The Lord has made himself known to be... Known, he has executed judgment. The wicked has snared in the work. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we gather as your children as Christ's bride, and we, get, we gather as those who are without blemish because we are in 
you, Jesus, because we sit in your righteousness, not through might or merit or strength, are we without blemish, but because Jesus, you yourself is without blemish. You are spotless, holy, upright. And Lord, when you died, we, we, get, we get, we inherit this status that is ours forever in heaven. It's how you, Father, view us today. It's how you will view us tomorrow. And it's how you will view us in 20 years from now. And Lord, it is an incredible grace that we would feel this freedom to know that, Lord, in the midst of our wandering hearts to idols, that we are still spotless without blemish. That you have fixed us in heaven forever and ever. That we are in the process of being sanctified, but Lord, right now you see us as complete because of Christ and Christ alone. Would we come to your word, Lord, whether we are wracked in guilt and shame or have a good grasp of the gospel this morning? Would we come to your word knowing that we have access, whether it's been habitual wandering or a heart of worship towards you? Lord, we have access to you because Christ has always got access to you. And Lord, we come in Christ. Open your word, open our minds, open our hearts, Lord, that we may see your magnificent word come alive to us. That it may stir us to a greater affection for your name in the midst of affliction as we see David in, in this psalm. May your name be lifted high. May the name that is proclaimed in this passage, the most high, be the name that is on our lips. That you, Lord, are the most high. That your way is higher than ours. That your thoughts are higher than ours. That every aspect of you is higher, that, Lord, this world may realize that we are but men created and you are the infinite one, the uncreated one, utterly different in every way. Humble us, exalt yourself. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we started in Psalm 9, 1 to 10. And we looked at David, who is the writer of this psalm, and he is recounting the wonderful deeds of the Lord. And he's recounting the wonderful deeds of the Lord in the midst of his affliction. David probably penned this psalm after the fight against Goliath, Goliath after he beat Goliath. Maybe it was after the fight against the Philistines, or the one that's not likely, but people throw out there is his battle against his son Absalom, when he had victory over Absalom. It's more likely that it's the earlier ones, Goliath and the Philistines. And he is, if we know the story, he has had victory over these great enemies. These enemies should have crushed him. He's a shepherd boy. Goliath should not have fallen to the hand or the stone of David, but he knew that his strength came from God. Now, not long after this battle, David is anointed king. And he's anointed king, but he doesn't get the throne. Saul is still on the throne. And Saul gets jealous of David. There's a great song. David kills his, or Saul 
kills his thousands, David kills his ten thousands. And Saul is jealous of David and chases him out of the city. And it would seem that David is writing this psalm in the midst of his past victory, which he knows is God's, but his current affliction. He's suffering. He should be king, yet he's in a cave. He should be on the throne in Jerusalem, yet he's being ran out of the city. And he's writing in this passage, as we look at just a couple of verses at the start, or verse 1, I will recount all your wonderful deeds. David's discipline in the midst of his affliction here is to recount the wonderful work of God. And as we looked through the psalm last week, we saw it was broken up in a couple of verses at a time, three and four, five and six, as he declares the victory of God. And we said last week that to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing, that passage from Corinthians, as the Christian discipline, that we can be in the midst of great sorrow but rejoicing, the key to sorrowful yet always rejoicing is to remember that God is always in victory is that God, God is always in victory despite whether it feels that way or not. David must have felt like God had lost. Yet as he recounts the wonderful works of God, he states over and over again that God is enthroned. God is on his throne. And God will have ultimate victory. Towards the end of the, the, the sermon last week in verses 1 to 10, we see that God destroys, blots out the nations that do not know him. And we looked at the passage, the great triumphant passages of uh, Ezekiel 47 and, um, and the, the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of the statue that is destroyed by the rock. That God's kingdom will prevail. God will always be on the throne. There is no nation that is going to overthrow God. And there's no suffering that is going to overthrow God's purpose for our life. So in the midst of our affliction, in the midst of our suffering, the key to being sorrowful yet always rejoicing is knowing and growing in the knowledge of God and his victory. Knowing and growing in the knowledge of God and his victory reminds us that God is always in victory despite when we feel like we are afflicted and suffering. God's purpose, God's plan, it will prevail. So David sets his eyes upon the Lord and he speaks these truths to his heart. And this is the great discipline of a Christian, to learn to teach their heart, to learn to teach their mind. Every morning we have to rehearse and repeat the gospel message to ourselves again and it seems that that's what David would be doing. In his psalm, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. And then he goes through this great list of things. And he says in verse 2, you are the most high. A great name that reminds us that God is higher than all. Isn't that an incredible name of God? The most high. You're higher than me. Your purpose is higher than me. Your plan is higher than me. Your ways are higher than me. A humbling title to say, God, in your name is the very essence of how much you are better than me and bigger and different to me. In verse 3, he says, you're better than, your, better than my enemies. You conquer my enemies. In verse 4, he says, you're with me and for my just cause. And we said that it is because David's heart was for God, his just cause was for God's name's sake. 
He says in verse 5 that God is gracious and patient and rebukes before judges. He rebukes before he judges. And we see so clearly through the Old Testament this patient and loving God over and over, pleading with Israel, repent, turn back from your idols. And he, he rebukes over and over again before he judges. He is compassionate and slow to anger. In verse 8, he is the stronghold for, those, for today. He's the stronghold for tomorrow against our enemies and against his own wrath. In verse 9, the Lord never forsakes his own. And in verse 10, sorry, that was verse 10. He never forsakes his own. The discipline to recount the wonderful works of God. The discipline to have moments where we call ourselves back to the Lord and back to the Lord's victories. I was struck last year by the Psalms and this one phrase that's in many Psalms, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's a phrase that I feel like I brush over all the time, but what is it saying? He's, he's calling to his soul. He's yelling to his own self to say, bless the Lord, worship the Lord. Give honor and glory to the Lord. In Psalm 42, he says, hope in the Lord, O my soul. Put your trust in him. David calls and pleads with his own mind and heart to trust in the Lord. And he, in Psalm 9, recalls the wonderful works of God. Who to? Himself, first and foremost. And we'll see later to others. But the first discipline is that we would be discipled and learn to grow in the knowledge of God's work and the knowledge of who God is. To recall his attributes. You are gracious, Lord. You are merciful, Lord. You have victory, Lord. And how much more does the Christian have to recount? So the process we see in Psalm 9 is really the Christian life, all of life, which is worship, discipleship, and evangelism. Worship, discipleship, and evangelism, I will recount is discipleship. To grow ever more in the knowledge of God, I will recount the wonderful works of God. I will praise, he says, is worship. Because I have recounted, my heart will start to sing praise to the Lord. And later in verse 11, he says, I will tell, I will tell the peoples of his deeds. Evangelism, to bring good news. Christianity can be summed up in those three things, worship, discipleship, and evangelism, and we make it so complex. We are always worshiping. We are always growing in the knowledge of the Lord, and we strive to tell people about the good things of the Lord. That's what we're going to look at today as we unpack these 10 verses. Verse 11, sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. In verse 1, he started by saying that he, his whole heart rejoices as he recounts the Lord's work. Here he gets, once again, despite his heart being despairing, despite him being in reflect, uh, affliction, he rejoices in the victory of the Lord, and the victory of the Lord is that he is enthroned in Zion. David, the king, or David, the coming king, remembers that he, he, he himself is not going to be the ultimate ruler. He will rule in Zion, the hill in Jerusalem. That's what it was known as. But ultimately, the Lord is enthroned. And he once again comes back to his heart, knowing just the verse before that says, Oh Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you. 
knowing that those who seek out the Lord, those who call on his name, God will not forsake. He says, I will sing praise to you who sits on the throne. David's heart is being drawn back to remember that the Lord is the one who sits on the throne. You are enthroned in Zion. You are the one who is to be praised. You are the one who is to have glory and worship. As I said, how much more does the Christian have to recount of the wonderful works of Christ? John Piper wrote a PDF. You can download it for free uh, on Desiring God. And it's the, the uh, what's it called? 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. I will recount the wonderful works of the Lord, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. Can you name them? I read through the titles. I've read the book uh, many years ago. It's, it's incredible. The amount that Jesus accomplished on the cross, we say he took away our sins, he brought forgiveness, he defeated death so that we can have everlasting life. There's more than that. There's 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. There's probably more than 50. But an incredible resource for us to turn to and read and recount all that Jesus accomplished in dying on the cross and raising to life. What will he accomplish through the Holy Spirit? As we look at the book of Acts and he says, wait before you leave to the apostles. Wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And he accomplishes the establishment of his church, which is now around the world. When we recount the wonderful works of God, we are reminded to sing praise to the Lord for he sits on the throne. Jesus didn't ascend to nowhere Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. I remember preaching Psalm 110 at Easter, this great victorious psalm that the Lord ascends into heaven and sits on the throne, and he's sitting on the throne in power. He's not sitting on the throne in in passiveness. He's sitting on the throne in power. So when we recount the works of the Lord, when we sit back as Christians and we think that Christ died and said, it is finished that our guilt is gone, our shame is gone, our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, that we have a security, we have security in our eternal life. When we sit on the throne and think of the ascension that the Lord ascended to the throne of power, we are recounting the fact that the Lord is enthroned in Zion, of course, the new Zion, not the hill in Jerusalem. We must recount in order to sing. We must recall the works of God in order to sing. I will sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned. David is in affliction. David is in suffering. David is in pain. David should be living a good life in Jerusalem. Yet he's in in a cave somewhere or near the brook, near the waterhole. And he says, I will recount. And as he recounts, his heart learns to sing. The great discipline of a Christian is that we would learn to recount and learn to preach every morning. Every morning. That we would learn every morning. And then as we know that the heart wanders from the Lord moments after we leave his word, that we would recount once again at morning tea and then again at lunch and then again in the evening, reminding ourselves of the victory of Christ, reminding ourselves of his power and him sitting on the throne. I always quote the song, Come Thou Fount, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. 
It's an incredible line because it, it, makes, it reminds me of me. I'm there. I agree with that. Why am I so prone to wonder? Why am I so prone? I need you to chain my heart to you, Lord. And we chain our heart to him by meditating on his word and recounting his wonderful works. And as David saw, he sung praise to the Lord because he recalled that the Lord sits on his throne in Zion. That even though David himself is not on the throne, even though David has been chased out, the Lord is there. So from our discipleship, as we recount the work of the Lord, as we grow in the knowledge of God's attributes and the victories that God has claimed through Christ, we are led to praise. We are led to sing. And of course, we are led to speak to others. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Recounting leads to knowing and knowing leads to wanting to share. We want to share, right? We want to share what's really in our heart. We want to share what we really love, what we desire, what, what comes from our mouth, what comes out of our mouth comes from the heart. If our heart has been in tune to the Lord as David's heart has, although he's in affliction, it's been in tune to the Lord and his victories and his attributes, he's now saying, I must tell. I must tell the peoples. I must tell all the peoples of his wonderful deeds. As he meditates, not on his sorrow and his suffering, not on his, his, his wallowing in the pits of not sitting on the throne, but as he meditates on the victory of the Lord, he says, I must tell. You can imagine he sat around with these mighty men who were with him and he just started telling them, don't despair, the Lord is on the throne. He's enthroned in Zion. Saul, he may be king, but the Lord is ruling. It is the same for us. As we think about the fear of evangelism, the fear of not having the right answers or not, not knowing what to say, but we can share about what we love. We can share about what we care most about. It becomes natural to us. It surprises me how often Christians can get together and very little of that time is spent talking about the Lord. Don't we all have the same thing in common? Isn't the only reason we hang out because of Jesus? Isn't that really it? Because Jesus has claimed us as his own and that's why we hang out. That's why we like gathering here. It's why we have meals together. It's why we go out preaching. As we meditate on his wonderful works, I believe that every day, if we start our day thinking about our current situation, all the plans, all the stress that we have. If we start meditating on these things, the due dates, the pain that we're in, then the very thing we're going to speak about is those things. We're going to speak about our stress. We're going to be pessimistic about the outcome of our life. But if our day starts recounting the wonderful works of the Lord, if our day starts in a way where we are just pleading with our soul, saying, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Hope in God. If it recounts that we are justified by grace and grace alone, that it's through Christ that he is our righteousness, then the thing that may come out of our mouth, as it was for David, will be the works of the Lord. The Lord. 
He created the heavens and the earth. Christ, he is my righteousness. I'm not a good person, we can say to the peoples, but Christ is my righteousness. From our discipleship comes praise and from our praise will come an overflow that wants to tell of his wonderful works. Last week, the challenge at the end of the message was have a plan. Have a plan to read the Bible this year. And we can read in a casual way that says we don't need to exhaust every passage. We can read it just as a story to find out the whole story of God, to see his victories and his character. And we can read it in an in-depth way where we study it and explore a passage. And we can pray the same way. We can pray casual, casually without ceasing, just talking to God about how we're feeling as we go for a walk or do our daily tasks. Or we can intercede and deliberately hide away in a, in a room and plead with God for people's salvation and for our own sanctification and for others' sanctification. Have a plan that you may recount the wonderful works of God because I can tell you, you will know when I'm not recounting his works. You will know because I will be in despair and I will know when you aren't recounting his works. And we need each other to be encouraging and saying, brother, sister, recount his works, recall his wonderful deeds. There are so many to look to. Verse 12 says, for, for he, God, who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. David goes back to recounting the works of the Lord after he's sung praise and says, I'll tw- tell of the I'll tell among the peoples his, his deeds. It's a great reminder that it's a repetitive habit of dwelling on the wonderful works of the Lord. Have you noticed that? I sometimes wonder if I'm insane as I see my heart lifted up and glorifying God and worshipping him, but then it spirals down again as I start to think about the world. But he goes back to recounting the wonderful works of God. For he who avenges blood is mindful. God is the one who will defend you. God is the one who will uphold you. And David is literally saying, Lord, bless, my soul needs to bless the Lord. I've started praising, but it's not quite there. I need to praise more. I need to recount more. I need to remember more of God's work. And he recalls that God is the one who avenges blood. God is the one who will have victory. And I think we see this play out in David's life as he has two opportunities to take Saul's life. Two times David could have taken Saul's life and it would have been over. He would have been king. Yet what does David do? He doesn't. He does not take the Lord's anointed. He says, no, God anointed him king. He will avenge him. He will avenge my blood. God will care for me. God will put me on the throne when he is good and ready. And he doesn't take Saul's life either of the times. We recall, we, we recall the passage of Romans 13, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In the midst of being thrown down and cast out and treated poorly, in the midst of affliction and suffering, we don't need to get our own. We need to trust in the one who will get victory in the end or who has victory now. 
God is not distant in our affliction. God is near to us. I love Psalm 56 verse 8. This is incredible. You have kept count of my tossings. Isn't that incredible? The Lord has kept count of your tossings. Those nights when you were restless, those nights when you were in pain, those nights when you are suffering, he has kept count of your tossings. And he, he goes on to say, uh, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Psalm 56, verse 8, this incredible, beautiful line that reminds us that God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And David recounts this work of the Lord, that in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my illness, in the midst of uh, oppression against colleagues, in the midst of people standing against the gospel, in the midst of people pushing back against us in the neighborhood or whatever it may be, God counts my tossings. God cares for the afflicted. He hears the cry. He counts the tears or puts the tears in your bottle. I love the image of Jesus when he walks into Jerusalem and sees the crowd and he, he says, they are, he, it says, Jesus had compassion on them and they are sheep without a shepherd. They are harassed and helpless sheep without a shepherd. And then he walks up to the tomb later on in John 11 and sees the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps for Lazarus. He weeps over death. And then he gets to Jerusalem later on as he is about to predict the downfall of Jerusalem and he weeps for Jerusalem, the city. Our God cares. And when we recount the works of the Lord, we recount the fact that he has compassion, that he has been patient, that he has called us out of darkness and into the light of his beloved son. When we're in the midst of affliction, maybe, maybe we can't see the victory of the Lord, but we can know that he's counting our tossings and bottling up our tears. It turns David to prayer in verse 13. This psalm, I don't know if you noticed when we were reading it, but it, it almost chops and changes to what is happening or what it is. It seems to be like sometimes he's speaking to the people, sometimes he's speaking to his heart, at other times he's praying to the Lord and talking directly to the Lord. It's quite uh, uh, jumpy in the way it moves around. And right here we, we go straight to be gracious to me, O Lord. He's turned to pray. He's turned to pray to the Lord and ask for the Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. David turns to praying, but as he prays, he recounts the works of the Lord. His, his prayer is informed. It's a really incredible discipline to have an informed prayer. His prayer is informed by what he's already recounted through his meditation on the victories of God. His prayer is informed by his understanding of God's character. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. He knows that God is gracious. He said that previously earlier in this passage, in this, in this psalm, that God is gracious and merciful. We see that David's prayer is informed and he's praying, be gracious to me. He calls on God's attribute, his characteristic, and he says, see my affliction from those who hate me. And once again, recalls the work of the Lord, oh, you who lift me up from the gates of death. He knows that in his affliction, 
He knows that in his affliction, the only one he can turn to, the only one he can call to, the only one he can trust in is the one who lifts him up from the gates of death. How much more for us who have the gospel of the Lord who will lift us up from the gates of death, that we may see death, that we will face death, death, but he through his righteousness, through his death, through his power alone will be lifted up from the gates of death. In our affliction, in our suffering, as David found for himself that there were times it felt like he was at that very point, that he was about to enter in and was walking in the valley of the shadow of death, as that great psalm says. There are times when affliction is just far too great for us. There are times when suffering, I've, I've been there, I feel it. It's real. When it feels like God is not there, but he, he says, be gracious, be gracious to me, Lord. You who lift me up from the gates of death. He trusts that God alone is the one who can lift him, who can carry him, who can strengthen him. He trusts that his rod and his staff, they comfort him. And he calls upon the very characteristics of God. And like I said, how much more for us as Christians? That we are in the firstborn among the dead. We are in, remember that phrase from Ephesians? You are in Christ Paul didn't use the term Christian. He would just talk about being in Christ. We were all in Christ. We are viewed as, don't take this the wrong way, as Christ. We're not Christ. Don't don't take that the wrong way. Don't say, I said that we're all Christ. I don't want to be misquoted there. But we are seen as a son with an inheritance so that when we die, when our body lays lays in the grave, our soul will be lifted up to the Lord. And his prayer continues on. As I said, it was an informed prayer. He wants to be lifted up from the gates of death so that, or in verse 14, that I may recount your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. Isn't this wonderful? Listen to his prayer. What is the reason for his hope? What what is the reason for wanting to be lifted up from the gates of death? Why doesn't he just want to die? Because he wants to go forth and recount more of God's praises. He wants to go forth to the gates of Zion, that is the gates of Jerusalem, and praise the Lord, rejoice in his salvation. He wants to go forth and tell and and, and make sure everyone knows that he has been lifted up, that he has prevailed, that he has overcome his affliction and suffering. Not for his own sake. Not that he himself will be on the throne. Not that he himself will prosper, but that God's name will be seen, that God's salvation will be revealed. His prayer to be released from the affliction is that he may sing praise, that he may rejoice in salvation, that he would have spiritual prosperity and not earthly prosperity. As you ponder your prayers... We've all been in suffering. We've all faced affliction. Maybe you're facing it right now. Maybe you're going to face it this year. Maybe we all will face some sort of affliction this year. What is our reason for praying for release? 
Why do we want release from our suffering? What we see in the scripture is that suffering is never meaningless. Suffering always has a purpose, and the purpose is to make us better worshippers of God. More God-focused and less self-focused. Times when we lack money, times when we lack health, times when we're under persecution, times when the gospel has opposition, reminds us of our weakness. And when we're in the midst of that weakness, we can pray, Lord, heal me, fix me, make me strong again so that I can do a better job. For years I've wondered how long Grace will suffer in her health. For years I've wondered how long it will be because I always look and say, Lord, if God was healthy, how much more could we do? But God saying, how much better are you at worshipping? How much better are you and Grace at worshipping me now that you are suffering than if you were both well and thinking you were doing all this stuff? That we would look for spiritual prosperity rather than earthly prosperity. That our prayer would say, Lord, pick me up from this gate of affliction, from this place of almost death, that I may recount your praises at the gates, the public square, that I may rejoice not in my own strength, but in your salvation. And in verse 15, he goes on and, and changes again. He's been praying and he goes back to speaking about the world and their existence and wanting them to acknowledge the Lord as they ought. And he says, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are ensnared in the work of their own hands. One of the things we often don't give credit for is how God punishes people for sin. Now, often we look at the plagues and people are like, look at COVID. It's a punishment for sin. But the greater punishment, the most common punishment we see in Scripture is that God hands people over to their desires. He handed Jerusalem over to their desire for other idols. He handed Jerusalem over to their desire for a king. And that king became corrupt, or those kings became corrupt. In Romans 1, it says, Therefore the Lord gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their own bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What we see very clearly is that God's punishment and the consequence of sin is to say, go for it. Live in your sin. See how far it gets you. Endure your idolatry. See how that God that you worship serves you. Will, he, will that statue give you power and strength? Will your lust serve you? Will it go well for you in life? And God allows them to be caught in the net that they set, in the pit that they dug, in their own wicked schemes, come undone and ruin them. Things haven't changed. 
The world has been handed over to their desires. And the only reason we are any different is because God was so gracious to us and took away the veil from our eyes and gave us his spirit, which changes our desires. The only reason is that today you and me, if you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and He has transformed your heart and is transforming your heart so that you no longer desire this world and the flesh, but you desire God above all. But we must be aware that there are Christians out there who are grieving the Holy Spirit who are not recounting the wonderful works of the Lord, who are not meditating on the victory that God has, and in so doing, they're grieving the Holy Spirit. And in the midst of grieving, it means we are not sensitive to the Spirit's conviction. And a lukewarm Christian may be saved, but barely. They may be saved in their, because it's not their own work, but they are in the midst of being handed over to their own desires. They're grieving the Holy Spirit that they have become become hard-hearted. I've said it before that the most miserable person in the world is a Christian who is grieving the Holy Spirit. They've hardened their heart. They're not recounting the wonderful works of the Lord. They're not praying in repentance. They have become stubborn. Of course they can be saved because salvation is through grace and grace alone, But because of their grieving of the Holy Spirit, they are not repenting. Repentance. Repentance is the habit of a Christian life in all circumstances. Repentance is is merely admitting to God what God already knows about you. There is nothing you can confess to one another that we should be shocked about because we're sinners because we have a broken heart, that we have turned from the Lord, that we have rebelled against him, and there is an element of our flesh that still remains that the Holy Spirit is correcting and changing and and, and fixing in us. But it's through the exposure of those idols that we are sanctified. If we keep sin to ourselves, if we enclose it, if we do not repent, we will come to a place of grieving the Holy Spirit and hand it over to the desires of our flesh. Psalm 32 verse 3 was quoted to me this morning. It's incredible. It says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When I did not repent, my bones wasted away. Repentance. Brothers and sisters, we must live in repentance as we recount the wonderful works of God because if we are recounting the wonderful works of God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are reminded in our repentance of a great work, a great work of God's grace, a great work of the cross, a great work of the resurrection, a great work of the righteousness of Jesus and not our own. Repentance is a habit of being freed from our sins day after day. And the Christian who is stuck in their pride and stubbornness and does not repent to anybody is either a non-believer or grieving the Holy Spirit. And I think it is a sad state to be in. So plead with you, brother and sisters, if you are in that place of grieving the Holy Spirit and stuck in your pride, would you be humbled by God's grace and humbled by the forgiveness that the Lord brings, that it is without 
You don't need to bring anything to him. It's without work or merit or strength on your part. It is a humbling of your heart that says, God, I am weak, which you already know. I have failed in every area which you already know. David continues to talk about the nations that have been handed over to their ways. They have forgotten about God in verse 17. The wicked shall return to Sheol. That's the place of the dead. All the nations that forget God. Those who do not recount the works of God, those who do not remember God, those who do not trust in God, as it said earlier in verse 6, they will be blotted out forever and ever. They will go to the place of death. God is gracious and patient with those he loves, but there is judgment for those who do not repent and believe in him. It's why we stress belief. It's why we stress repentance for those who have forgotten the Lord, for those who want to puff themselves up and elevate themselves above all else, they will be sent away. Because how does this psalm finish? It compares the stubborn, forgetful nations to the poor and needy, those who are humble at heart in verse 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of earth. The the humble at heart. Of course, the humble at heart only takes place place through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the comparison is those who are stubborn, those who are puffed up in pride, will be forgotten, will be punished in the place of the dead. And then David, in his great charge, says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. Is this, this is the, the place that a person who recounts the wonderful works of God will get to. They will see the difference between themselves and God. And God will be so far above, he will be the most high in their life. The person who continually recounts the wonderful works of God will say, you are most high. You are far above. I am man. I am common. I love the line, let the nations know you are but men. Why? Because men are common. When it says men in the scripture, it means men and women. Man meant mankind. That's what we see here in this passage. You're common. We are the same. We are created. We're not different. Yes, we have our unique attributes and God's beautifully woven us together and designed us, but we are the same. God is utterly different to us. Would we fear the Lord is the prayer of David. As he recounts the wonderful works of God, he realizes that we should highly exalt him, that he should be most high and we should be humble. And he does this in the midst of his affliction. As we think about that, in the midst of affliction, not in the midst of victory, not in the midst of prosperity, in the midst of being homeless and driven out of his city, the city which he should be king over, he recounts the wonderful works of God. And he concludes that the nations must know they are common. And he is utterly different. As we recount the wonderful works of God this year in our life, as we face affliction and suffering, would we say to the Lord, let the nations know, let our neighborhood know, let our workplace know, 
and wherever else we go, know that they are but men? And would we tell of his wonderful works among the peoples? Because we're just sharing something we love. We're just proclaiming something that our heart overflows with. But it only overflows with when we meditate on his word regularly. Let's pray. We sing praise to you with our whole heart as we recount, Lord, your wonderful works. As we meditate on the victory of Christ over sin, the flesh, and the devil, over death. As we think of him on the throne, the heavenly throne, as he rules today, tomorrow, and every day until he comes again. Lord, would we recount your wonderful works? Would it lead us to praise? Would it lead us to sing? And Lord, would it lead us to tell of your wonderful deeds to all the peoples? Father, in the midst of affliction, which we will all face this year, Will we be brothers and sisters to one another and call, call to one another to be humbled, to encourage one another to recount, to remind one another of your wonderful work, knowing that you have ultimate victory. Keep us humble, Lord. Keep your name exalted high above. Be the most high in our life day after day, moment after moment, knowing that we are prone to wonder, wonder. Knowing, Lord, that we are prone to chase after created things. As John said, let us decrease so that you may increase, increase in our life. For your glory and your namesake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.